0: So on Sunday mornings, we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel. It's, we've been studying through the life of David. And, uh, you know, David is the man who God called. He, he said, David is a man after my own heart. And so the title we've given this series, studying the life of David in 1 Samuel, is A Heart for God. And our desire is that as we study this book and as the, we study these stories, that God would form that kind of heart in us, a heart that is aligned with his heart and his desires. And so far, you know, in 1 Samuel, we have seen David just, he is the very model of what it looks like to trust in God with bold faith, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances, right? Everything he's done until now has been awesome, right? We look up to him. He's, he's great. How can he do that? Well, here in chapter 21, we're going to see a different side of David. We're going to see David, this man after God's own heart, we're going to see him in a state of spiritual decline, This is the first time we've seen this side of David, but we're going to see David taking his eyes off the Lord, and he's going to be acting not out of faith this time. He's going to be acting out of fear. We're going to see David not trusting in God. We're going to see David doing things and acting in ways that are not according to God's heart. And I really believe this is an important chapter because it it contains a very important message for each and every one of us here. And, And the issue it addresses is this. If and when you find yourself in a place of spiritual decline, how do you put the brakes on that, right? How do you turn it around? How do you pull out of a tailspin? How do you reverse the decline and get back to a good place in your relationship with God and in your Christian life? The title of today's message is, Reversing the Decline. You know something that made a lot of news in recent years is how a lot of the big companies from the 20th centuries, who ha- from the 20th century, the companies that had the most iconic brands, uh, some of them no longer even exist, and a lot of them have declined greatly from their you know heights of their companies in the 20th century. Most of these, uh, you know, many of these great companies of the 20th century, as changes took place in the world and in their given industries, a lot of them went into decline like I said, a good number were not able to pull out of that decline. They were not able to turn it around, and they no longer exist. But a certain number of these companies who were big in the 20th century and also experienced decline, they were able to turn things around and reverse that decline and become successful, profitable companies again. And the kind of tagline they've put on this is they call these turnaround companies, right? Uh, Perhaps the greatest example of a turnaround company is Apple. We all know their story. Apple went from being a strong, innovative technology company to almost shutting down completely. Uh, But then they were able to turn things around, and now they've become one of the most profitable companies in the world. IBM is another example. They went from being an industry leader to almost shutting down completely in the 1980s, but they were able to turn it around in the 90s and become profitable again. You know, all of these companies had a few things in common, both the ones that shut down and the ones that were able to turn around. They all had a few things in common. They started out successful, doing well, but when circumstances changed, they went into decline. Some of them, though, some of them were able to put the brakes on the decline and even reverse the decline and get back to a place of health and growth. And in each of these turnaround companies, the turnaround required changes. It required changes in mentality, changes in behavior. And the point is this, that that even the strongest of the strong experience decline. sometimes. It's not a question of, will you experience decline? It's the question is, how far will you go before you take the necessary steps to reverse the decline? And a lot of these principles that that are true of these companies They're very true of our lives as well, and they're very true of our spiritual lives, our relationship with God and the Christian life. Even the strongest of the strong experience times of decline. Times of decline in the vitality of their faith, in in the decline in trusting God and walking with God. And and I would venture to say that some of you here today are probably in that place. Maybe those around you don't know it. Maybe they can't see it. but, But your relationship with God, your spiritual life, it's not where it used to be. It doesn't have the vitality that you know it should have. Maybe you are in a place of decline. Well, that is exactly where David found himself in the chapter that we're looking at today. Uh, But as we're going to see, David was able to take the necessary steps to reverse the decline. And I believe that you can too. So that's what I'm hoping that God will uh, bring to our awareness as we study this chapter. So let's start reading from 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse one. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. David is a man with a calling on his life. God had called him as a young man out of obscurity. He was a poor man. He was a shepherd, but God called him as a young man to be the next king of Israel. And it seemed for for a good time there that everything was just falling into place, right? Everything was coming together nicely for that to happen, for David to ascend to the throne of Israel. There's just one thing that's not falling into place though. And he has a name. His name is Saul. He's the king of Israel. You see, the interesting thing about Saul is that Saul knew, he knew that David was called to be king of Israel. That God had chosen David to be king of Israel and that what he needed to do was to step down as king so that David could ascend to the throne. But Saul is not willing to do that. Giving up power is not something that Saul is willing to do. So rather than obeying the will of God and stepping down as king, Saul has determined that he will do whatever it takes to hold on to power, even if that means murder even if it means that he has to kill David so that he can retain his power. And so we pick up the story here in 21 in this place where David is now a fugitive. He is on the run from King Saul. King Saul's, all of his energy is focused on hunting David down and killing him. At this point in David's life, there's nowhere where he is safe. He has to leave his home. He has to leave his friends. He has to leave his family. He he has been forced to leave everything that is comfortable and familiar. And he has been forced to go out into the great unknown. At this point, David is alone. I mean, try to put yourself in his head. He is alone. He's surely confused. He's definitely scared. And he's probably incredibly discouraged. His faith and his trust in God have been shaken at this point. Here he is. He's, he's got this calling on his life, this calling that he wasn't looking for. He didn't ask for it. He was just out watching sheep. And this prophet shows up one day and says, God's chosen you to be king and pours oil on his head as an anointing. And I mean, it wasn't something that he wanted. He didn't ask for it. He wasn't looking for it. But it seemed that, hey, everything was pointing to that this is what God was doing that God had chosen this, and everything just seemed to be falling into place. But now, well, what's going on? He's come down this road so far, and now everything's just fallen apart. And you can imagine what kind of thoughts were going through David's head as he ran and he hid in the wilderness, hiding out in caves every day, you know, wondering, what is he going to eat? Where is he going to find water to drink? How is he going to even stay alive? He's probably thinking, you know, God, I was perfectly happy as a shepherd. Why did you have to do this to me? Why would you lead me to believe that I was called to be king if you were just going to leave me to die in the wilderness? why Why didn't you just leave me alone so I could just live out my days in peace and quiet as a shepherd? That would be better than being hunted like a dog and living in the wilderness. You know, the psalms that were written during this time, they give us a record. They give us insight into what was going on in David's heart and David's mind during this time. He was experiencing what has been called the dark night of the soul. You know, this is something that many people experience. Perhaps many of you have experienced this before. Maybe you're in that place right now. Uh, The story is told of a man who went to see his doctor. The year was 1925. And he told his doctor, he said, I'm exhausted. I, I'm having feelings of anxiety. I'm having just feelings of depression. I'm exhausted because I, I can't sleep at night. I'm just feeling terrible. And the doctor gave him a checkup and found out that he was physically sound, he was physically fit. And the doctor said, well, you know, physically, there's just nothing wrong with this guy. And the doctor figured, you know, I know what this guy needs. He just needs to get out and and have a good time. He needs to get out and relax and have some laughs. So the doctor told him, well, here's here's my prescription for you. I'm not gonna prescribe medicine. Here's what I prescribe. There's a circus in town. I'm going to buy you tickets to the circus. I want you to go to the circus and just have a good time. There's this, uh, there's this clown at the circus. His name is the Great Grimaldi. And he's the world's greatest clown. He's got people rolling in the aisles every night, just laughing, just busting up. you got to go see this guy. He will cure your sad heart and he will give you joy. you got to go see the Great Grimaldi. And the man said, no, that's not going to help. He said, well, how do you know it's not going to help? I mean, just give it a shot, all right? And he said, no, I'm quite sure that's not going to help. You see, I am the great Grimaldi. You see, even the, the life of the party can experience the dark night of the soul. One writer described it this way. He said, it's like walking into the room of your soul, which has no lights and no windows. That's where David's at right now. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a difficult place. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate. But here's what I want you to see. Where does David go in this time of confusion, in this time of discouragement? Well, it says that he goes to Nob, to the house of the Lord, to the priest Ahimelech. He goes to the house of the Lord. At this time, the tabernacle of God was uh, erected in, in Nob. Now, the tabernacle, if you don't know, it was a big tent, which was kind of a portable church for the people of Israel. It was the place where they would go to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices and and make um, offerings to, to worship the Lord. The tabernacle was known by this kind of nickname. It was called the Tent of Meeting. And the reason it was called that is because that is where you would go to meet with God. And so when David needs a place of refuge, where does he go? He goes to the house of the Lord. In Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist says, he says, you you can turn there and look at it if you'd like, but the psalmist says, he says, I looked at all the injustice in the world. I looked at all the things that troubled me in life. And he said, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Life is not fair. So many things are just wrong. It doesn't make sense to me. But in verse 16 of Psalm 73, the psalmist gets to this point where he says, When I thought how to understand this, how to make sense of, of all these things that just don't make sense in the world, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I understood their end. The psalmist is saying, In life, nothing made sense to me. I was troubled. I was discouraged. But when I came to the house of the Lord, God spoke to me. God gave me assurance, and I found rest for my soul. And let me tell you, that is what I want Whitefields to be for you. That's what I want this place to be. I want it to be a refuge. I want it to be a place where you can walk through those doors feeling discouraged and depressed and confused, and you're able to come into this place and be ministered to by God. That you're able to come into this place and hear the prayers coming forth. You're able to hear the word of God coming forth and have a sense that God is speaking to you and ministering to you. That's what we want this place to be. To be a place of refuge and strengthening. David did the right thing in his uh, time of confusion and distress. He went to the house of God. But what he did after he got there, well that's a different story altogether. Let's continue. Verse 1 from the second part. Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which I send you and which I have charged you. He said, I'm on a secret mission. I, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Uh, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. Okay, David is hungry, right? He's been living outside. Uh, We don't know how long it's been since he had his last meal, but it could have been several days at this point. So he's hoping that if he goes to the tabernacle, that maybe they'll have something there that he can eat. Uh, But when Ahimelech, he sees David, right? The priest, he sees David coming. He immediately notices that something's awry, like something is not right. Something's up. Uh, And you know, Ahimelech at this point, he doesn't know that Saul is trying to kill David, that David's on the run. All he knows is that David is maybe the most famous person in Israel right now, and here he is. And, and look at him. I mean, he looks all rough. He's been sleeping outside for days now. He's probably dirty. He's probably been crying. He has like, you know, streaks and puffy eyes and stuff. He just looks like a complete mess. Not to mention that David's all alone now. A person of David's stature and a high-ranking official, a celebrity, he would never travel alone. He would always have protection. He would have an entourage with him. And so, the first thing Ahimelech says to David is, "Hey, what's going on here? There's, there's something that is not right. Something's not normal." And so, what does David do? He makes up a lie right? That's what he does. He says, oh, well, you see, here's the reason I look all rough. I'm on a secret mission. I'm on a secret mission from King Saul. That's why I'm alone. That's why I've been sleeping outside, and I'm supposed to meet up with these guys at such and such a place. You know, that's what you do. I have something vague to do. Uh, You know, I'm meeting with some guys in a undisclosed location, and maybe you have some bread on hand that I could, uh, that we could eat. Now, Now, of course, like I said, none of this is true. It's a lie. David's not on a secret mission. Uh, he's being chased by Saul. So what is he doing? Why is he lying to the priest? Well, well, here's why. Because if he tells Ahimelech the truth, well, he'd, he'd put Ahimelech in a kind of ethical conundrum, right? Should he help David, who's being chased, or should he stand by his king? Right? David, at this point, is an enemy of the state. And so if he tells Ahimelech that, hey, I'm a fugitive, I'm, they're trying to hunt me and catch me, well, then Ahimelech might say, well, I can't help you. To do so would be to go against the government, to go against the king, and I don't want to put myself in that kind of place, right? And so David lies to him. That, you know, he figures, well, what Ahimelech doesn't know can't hurt him. You know, David might have even thought, you know, this is a harmless kind of infraction here, because if I, you know, maybe he even thought, I'm doing Ahimelech a favor, right? Because if if I'm lying to him, at least he doesn't have to face that ethical dilemma of whether or not to help me. I'll just lead him to believe that, you know, I'm on this mission, and then he'll help me. Unfortunately, though, David's lie, he thinks it's, it's just going to, you know, hurt nobody. But in the end, what we'll see is that this has very grave consequences for Ahimelech. Next week in chapter 20, or I'm sorry, in chapter 22, yeah, next week, when Saul finds out that Ahimelech helped David out by giving him food here, Saul is going to have Ahimelech executed for helping out David. And so that's really on David because David kind of tricked Ahimelech into helping him out by telling him this lie. You know, I think for a lot of us, it can be easy to think that there are certain sins, you know, that really just have no repercussions, right? That you can do them, nobody will ever know, nobody will ever be hurt or affected by them. But the Bible says this, it it literally says, don't be deceived, What you reap, that you will also sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap life. So it seemed like a harmless little white lie at the time, but David will come to greatly regret having done this. But here's what I want you to see more than anything. Rather than walking in faith and bold trust in God, which has been kind of David's M.O. from from the outset. But rather than doing that right now, what is David doing? He's lying. He's conniving in order to protect himself, in order to provide for himself. He has the promise from God that he will be king someday. That promise means that, hey, if you're going to be king, that means, David, you're not going to starve to death. David, you're, you're not going to die in the wilderness. But rather than standing on that promise and trusting God to take care of him, David has now resorted to self-preservation. You might even say that David is acting a lot like Saul right now. You see, here, here we see David starting to go down, starting to decline. He had been walking at this high level with God, but now David is starting to go down. And as you see this, you can't help but think, well, this is, this is kind of like exactly what happened to Saul. I mean, Saul, if you remember, Saul started out great. Saul started doing, he was walking with God, he had a humble heart, he was filled with the Spirit, he was trusting the Lord. But then Saul started going down, and he just kept going down, 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 and he never pulled out of it. And now here's David, and David's starting to go down. And you wonder, how far are you going to go, David? How far down are you going to go? Are you going to end up just like Saul? Well, that still remains to be seen. Let's continue from verse 4. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us uh, always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when there is uh, when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread, uh, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Okay, so there was this holy bread, right? This holy bread was a symbolic and ceremonial thing there in the tabernacle. It was baked every day, and there would be 12 loaves of bread, you know, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were placed around a table in the sanctuary, in the holy place. And sharing a meal in many cultures, but especially to the Jews, sharing a meal is considered a very intimate thing that binds people together in a special way as you both consume the same meal and it becomes part of you. So this bread was ceremonial. It was to be eaten by the priests who had prepared themselves to commune with God. And they would eat this bread in the presence of God as an act, as a symbol of fellowship with God. And so to give this bread to David, this would be to go against all the customs and all the religious rituals that God himself had established. But here's Ahimelech the priest, and David's hungry, and so what does he do? Well, he gives him the bread, and he says, look, you can take it and you can eat it. All that I ask is that you be ceremonial clean. It's interesting right well you know what's even more interesting is that Jesus also talked about this story in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 6 Jesus reaches back to this story and Jesus says that Ahimelech did the right thing you know it's, it's an ethical question there as well should you break the religious tradition this is the rule God established this rule but you have this man who's hungry what do you do Well, Jesus said he did the right thing by going against the religious custom and giving David something to eat. And Jesus actually used that story, this one from 1 Samuel 21. He uses it as an illustration in his teaching that extending love and mercy to people is a higher priority than keeping religious traditions and rituals. But notice that that David, he's continuing to lie to Ahimelech, right? He continues to go with this story that he's made up. He says, oh yeah, yeah, my men. He doesn't have any men. But he says, oh yeah, my men, they're all ceremonial clean. Yeah, give me all the bread you got. They all need it. He's just continuing to lie. It's not true, but David just keeps on going with the lie. And that's kind of how it is with lying, right? I mean, once you start, you got to start making up lies to cover for your lies. Verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, or I like to call him Doug. So, yeah, his name was Doug, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. You know, it just seems more like a thug if you call him Doug. But anyway, this guy is a thug, and, and you will come to see that in future chapters. This isn't the last time we're going to see him, and, and let me tell you, he is a bad Bad man. Uh, He is one of Saul's servants, and it just so happens that he is there at the tabernacle that day. He's in a different part, and David, you know, he's talking to Ahimelech the priest, and then he looks over and he's like, oh no, right? He knows his cover's blown. He's in trouble. One of Saul's servants is there, and David knows immediately this is not good. That guy is going to go tell Saul. He's going to tell him where I'm at. He's going to tell him what I'm doing. He's going to tell him everything. This is bad news, and this really will come back to bite him, and that's what we're going to see in the next chapter. But verse 8, Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. See, David just keeps on lying. He says, you know, oh man, you're not going to believe this. I was running out the door, and uh, you know, I forgot my sword. I mean, can you believe it? Of all the things for a guy to forget when I'm running out the door on my way to a mission, I I forgot my sword. I mean, you know, silly me. If my head wasn't screwed on... I, I probably forget that. I'm just so, I'm just Mr. Forgetful, right? Hey, you guys wouldn't happen to have like an extra sword on hand, would you? I mean, that would just help me out. I wouldn't have to go all the way back home. It'd just be nice. And, uh, you know, just so many lies. Once you start, you gotta continue with the lies. That's that's the problem with, uh, you know, building that web of lies. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, uh, then take it, for there's none like it here. And David said, there is none like that sword. Give it to me. He says, well here, you know what? Wow. Actually, uh, we do have a sword lying around here, and it's a sword that you might be familiar with, David. It's the sword of Goliath. Can you believe it? What luck, right? David says, great. I'll take it. Now think about the irony here. The sword of Goliath Right? He's he's been given the sword of Goliath through all his lies, through everything. He comes to this place, he's conniving, and what do they put in his hands? The sword of Goliath. Now think about what must have been going through David's mind as he held the sword of Goliath that day. Think about what God must have been convicting him in his heart about. And this wasn't the first time that David had held this sword. We saw him hold this sword once before when he defeated Goliath. But the first time he held that sword, when he faced Goliath, when God gave him victory over Goliath, it was under very different circumstances, and it was for a very different reason. And David must have been reminded. David must have been convicted in his heart even at this point. As he, as he holds Goliath's sword, that the first time he held Goliath's sword, he, he didn't obtain it in the same way. He didn't come to obtain that sword in the first place by telling lies and half-truths like he's doing right now. No, he came to hold this sword the first time by radically trusting in God, even in the face of dire circumstances, impossible circumstances. But that's not what he's doing right now. You see, yes, Goliath's sword, that's a great weapon to have. But David, don't forget, when you defeated Goliath, you didn't have a sword, man. He didn't have a sword at all. You didn't need a sword to defeat Goliath. All you had was five smooth stones, David. David, when you defeated Goliath, you didn't have a sword. You had something more powerful than a sword. You had faith in Almighty God. And now what have you got, David? Well, now you've got a sword in your hand, but you don't have the faith that defeated Goliath. What What a sad place to be in. You know, maybe it's because of all the emotions that were filling David's heart at this point uh, because he's on the run and someone wants to kill him. Maybe it's because of his circumstances. He's just, whatever the reason, David is not trusting in the Lord the way that he has before. No, he's trusting now in his own cleverness, in his own abilities. He's telling lies. He's putting his trust in swords to protect him and to save him. Now looking at David here, you can't help but be reminded of Saul. Saul, we saw him just a few chapters ago. We, when we first met Saul, he was great. He, he started out with all the potential in the world to be a great man of God, to be a hero. He had the spirit of God was upon him. He was chosen by God. They said there is no one like him. He was a born leader, but he was also humble, and he was faithful, and he trusted in God. But then Saul began to decline, and Saul started on that downward course, and he just had no brakes, right? He's just going down, down, deeper and deeper, gaining momentum, and going faster and faster and declining in his walk with God. And Saul never stopped. He never put the brakes on. He just kept going. And he never pulled out of it. And now here's David, the man after God's own heart. And for the first time, we're seeing him sinning and compromising and not trusting God, not walking with God. And for you and me, let me tell you this. The question is not whether or not you will ever decline. The question is when you start to decline, where are the brakes? And will you put on the brakes? Let's continue in verse 10. David's feeling convicted at this point, but yet we'll see that he, he doesn't respond to that conviction. God's telling him, David, you're holding the sword of Goliath. Don't you remember, David? You're not walking in faith, David. This isn't good. Well, does David respond? Not yet. He goes, he goes further. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, does Gath, does that ring a bell for anybody? Anybody familiar with the name Gath? gath was a city of the philistines but it was more than just a city of the philistines gath is the hometown of goliath okay you remember that goliath from gath that's him what in the world is david doing going to gath most likely what david's doing here he's trying to become a mercenary he's going over to the other side and said i I want to switch sides i'll fight for you guys just give me refuge He's thinking if I go to the Philistines well that's the one place where Saul will never be able to touch me he'll never dare to go into Philistine territory to get me I'll be safe if I go hang out with the Philistines but here's the problem if David's fighting for the Philistines well who's he fighting against he's fighting against the people of Israel he's fighting against his own people what is David thinking? I mean, he is supposed to be the next king of Israel. Well, you can't be king over a people after you fight against them and kill them yourself, right? Da- David's switching sides here. What is he doing? He's going to kill the very people that God called him to be king over? David, this is a new low. I mean, lying is bad. Not trusting God is bad, but this This is terrible. David, you're going to give up your future? You're going to sacrifice your calling in an attempt to save yourself from Saul? Do you really not trust in God's promise to you that much? How can a man after God's own heart change his address to Gath? Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another? of him in dances Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands you know David was kind of hoping that Israeli TV didn't play in Gath but apparently uh, his celebrity has crossed the border into Gath and they they know about him and how could they not know about him I mean David did you really think that they're not going to recognize you in Goliath's hometown remember the guy that you killed and cut his head off that you killed this guy you remember David how you collected 200 Philistine foreskins as a prize for the king? You think they're really not going to know who you are? Of course they know who you are. You're like public enemy number one. How could you even think that they wouldn't recognize you? Verse 12, David took these words to heart, and he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David took their words to heart. Notice with me, uh, if you will turn with me to Psalm Fifty-six. Like I said, a, a lot of the psalms give us insight into what David's thinking at this time. Psalm fifty-six. Turn there with me. And uh, notice the title of this psalm. It says this: uh, "A Miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath." So we read it here in, in Psalm, or sorry, in First Samuel twenty-one. We read that David he uh, he took some things to heart. And and what did he take to heart? Well, it tells us what he took to heart, what was going through his heart and his mind. Here in Psalm 56 we can read it. It says in verse 1, "Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled or for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh" do to me verse 8 you have kept count of my tossings you have put my tears in your bottle are they not in your book then my enemies will turn back in that day when I call this I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise in the Lord whose word I praise in God I trust I shall not be afraid what can man do to me I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. What this psalm chronicles for us is David's journey from fear back to faith. We see in this psalm that David's decline that he's been on in this chapter, it's now stopped. David's decline has stopped. Now what's happening? David is reversing the decline. He's turning back to the Lord. You see, this is the difference between Saul and David. Both of them started out well, but both of them had times when their faith faltered, but yet Saul just kept on going for it. He just kept on going away from the Lord. He never turned back, but David, David turned back to the Lord. So here's David. He's been captured by the Philistines, and, and uh you know, it's caused him to repent of the stuff that he's been doing, the, the ways that he's not been trusting the Lord. And, but the question is, well, he's still in this mess. How is he going to get out of this mess that he's got himself into? They're going to kill him. I mean, he's public enemy number one. How's he, he's made this mess for himself. What's he going to do? Let's read on from verse uh, 12 or from verse 13. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made the marks on the doors of the gate. Means he's scratching the door with his fingernails and he's, he let his spittle run down his beard. He's just drooling all over himself, right? Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David, he's, he's in this mess, right? So what does he do? He starts just drooling all over himself and acting all crazy, right? Scratching at the doors. And apparently Achish, the king of Gath, he falls for it. Probably thought, well, surely this can't be the great David that you all talk about, right? David w- wouldn't be that dumb in the first place to just walk into a Philistine city. I mean, who would do that, right? This is probably just some weirdo who, who kind of looks like him. I mean, they probably all look the same over there, right? And so send him back to the Israelites. So we don't need to take care of their crazy people. This isn't an asylum. And so talk about the grace of God, right? David gets himself into a mess because he's not trusting in God. He's not doing things God's way. He's trusting in his own ability to take care of himself by lying and using swords, and it doesn't work. In order to get himself out of the situation, David has to do something that's completely humiliating. And it really is a fitting end to this time of David's spiritual decline and this mess that he's gotten himself into as a result. One more psalm. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 34. And, uh, and read the title of that one. It's a very famous psalm, actually. Um, it, this is the psalm in which we read that very famous verse. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, what is the context in which David says, taste and see that the Lord is good? Was David just having a great day, right? The sun was shining. He was out in the park just having a good day. You know what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, here's the context. David has drool all over his beard, right? This is the context. Uh, it, read, the, read the title of the Psalm, it says, Of David when he changed his behavior, and some of the translations say, when he pretended madness before Ahimelech or Abimelech, so that he drove him away. And David went his way. That's the context for this psalm. The context of taste and see that the Lord is good is that David has drool all over his face, right? David, and he's just overflowing with happiness and joy because by God's grace, God has gotten him out of this mess that he created for himself. You know what grace is? Grace is God's amazing goodness shown to us even though we don't deserve it. But notice what David says in that psalm. I just want to read these few verses. Verse 11. Of Psalm 34. Come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. What has David been doing? He's been speaking deceit. And he's saying, Guys, if you want to have a good life, kids, let me give you some advice. Don't do what I did. He says this He says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David's saying, yeah, well, I learned a big lesson, didn't I? It's, it's way better to just tell the truth. It's way better to do things God's way. If you do things God's way, you don't end up in the kind of messes that I got myself into when I went into that place of spiritual decline. This story is a turnaround story. David, the man after God's own heart, he was declining. But here's the thing that makes David great. Not only does he put the brakes on the decline, but he's able to to reverse the decline. He's able to get back to a healthy, good place in his walk with God. And he did it by repenting of the areas where he had been compromising and turning his back on God. And he turns back to God with his whole heart. And let me close with this. Let me just ask you this question. If you are in a place of spiritual decline, When are you going to hit the brakes? When are you going to hit the brakes? Why not today? Why not now? Maybe some of you are here today because that is the exact message that you need to hear. Maybe you've been declining. Maybe it's a little. Maybe it's a lot. But it's time to hit the brakes and turn your heart back to God and he stands ready with grace to receive you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us, Lord. We thank you that even when we mess up, Lord, even when we we have not deserved it, Lord, that is the very definition of grace. Lord, that you are good to us. You show us favor. You show us kindness, even when we don't deserve it. We see that in David's life, and Lord, how true is it in our lives as well? we just thank you for that grace. Lord, we thank you that you died for us when we didn't deserve it. Lord, when we weren't uh, even your friends, Lord. We, We were against you in our hearts, but Lord, you... You died for us because you loved us even when we didn't love you. Lord, I wanna pray for anybody who's here today who's in that place of spiritual decline. Lord, would you, would you show them today that they can put the brakes on it. Lord, they can turn back to you. They can get back to a good place and the time to do it is now. The time to do it's today. Lord, I pray collectively, Lord, we just say, Lord, today is a day when we draw a line in the sand and we turn our hearts back to you because you've been so good to us. Thank you, Lord. Just bless everyone here today, especially the fathers, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.